The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. The National Women's Soccer League kicks off March 16th on ION. Out in front to win! It's a new Saturday night destination featuring the best players in the world. Takes a shot, she scores! See the full schedule and find where to watch at IONNWSL.com. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History What did the average Roman soldier eat and drink while on campaign? Were the legions seen as an oppressive force in the regions they conquered, or more like local police? And why was one Roman centurion nicknamed Bring Me Another? Speaking with Emily Briffitt, author and historian Adrian Goldsworthy answers listener questions on life in the Roman army for today's episode. From training and punishment to whether the legionaries really hated being sent to Britain. Hi Adrian, thank you so much for joining us on the History Extra podcast. Well, thanks for inviting me. So we are going to be answering all of our listener questions about life in the Roman army. And I think to start, we should probably really contextualise this. What were some of the major moments in the lifespan of the Roman army? Well, obviously, a Roman army of some sort exists for a very long time. Rome's founded in the 8th century BC, The last person who calls himself a Roman emperor is defeated in Constantinople in the 15th century AD, and there are military forces all the way through. I suppose the classic period is really, when we start to know about it, it's the great wars against the Carthaginians and Hannibal taking his elephants over the Alps, all that sort of thing. It's Julius Caesar's day, and then it's the creation of the Roman Empire that stretches from what's now Scotland to what's now Syria, you know, the Tigris-Euphrates, to the Sahara Desert, to the Atlantic coast, this huge area You don't create an empire without using a lot of military force and you don't hold on to it. So although politics, diplomacy matters, there's a military story all the way through. So there are great moments and there are great achievements. Obviously, it's a very successful force because the empire is so successful. But in the end, the other thing people know about the Romans is the Romans decline and fall. So the Western Empire goes in the 5th century AD. How much of that is military weakness? How much of that is... Political is a question that we've been arguing about ever since it happened, and I think we'll continue to do so. So there's lots of dramatic moments. I mean, I think the famous commanders are probably people like Julius Caesar, Pompey to some extent in that period. Caesar, of course, isn't just famous because he won all these wars in Gaul and in the Civil War, but he wrote about them as well. So we get his version, and often only his version, of how great he was and how great his army was. So there are lots of stories about the Roman army to tell, and we probably shouldn't talk about the Roman army as, as Roman armies, because there's lots of different systems, lots of different armies over the many, many centuries. 
So obviously we're talking about this huge expanse of time. Can we possibly break it down into eras where we saw particular rises or falls or great moments of strength of the army, for example? I think, obviously, again, we come back to the big struggle with Carthage. They're known as the Punic Wars, the three big Punic Wars, because the Carthaginians originally came from Phoenicia in modern-day Lebanon and settled in North Africa and created this colony, and the Romans still called them Phoenicians, so you get Poini and Punic. The big one is fought over Sicily in the middle of the 3rd century BC, and that's the first time the Romans go outside the Italian peninsula. So that's a big, big moment, and it leads to a 20-year war and the creation of a Roman navy and horrendous losses because they learn how to win battles at sea, but they still don't really twig that the weather and storms are powerful phenomena, and they lose thousands and thousands of men, loads of ships in storms and disasters because they ignore what the people who know what they're doing actually say, you know, and so we... Not a good time to go around, go in that direction. Then you have the big struggle with Hannibal, which is fought, starts off in Italy, but spreads to Spain, to Macedonia, to Sicily, to North Africa. And it's in the years after that, the second century BC, that the Roman army expands and it turns Rome from being the big Italian power to the big Mediterranean power. Then in the first century BC through to early AD, you have. Rome tearing itself apart with civil wars led by people like Sulla and Marius and Caesar and Pompey and Mark Antony and Octavian, but also conquering more quickly. Their armies have got very good and there isn't really a big rival anymore. So you have the creation of the Roman Empire in that period that almost reaches its full extent. They add a few places like Britain a bit later. But then you have centuries of consolidation of protection where orators will talk about the Roman army as if it's the walls around a city. You know, it's spread around the frontiers to protect us from the forces of barbarism, from, you know, uncivilized masses who want to tear everything down. And it keeps us safe and we're peaceful and prosperous inside. And there's some truth in that until in the third century, they start fighting a lot of civil wars. But a mark of how strong the Roman army and the Roman Empire is, is that they can do this for 250 years before it goes really, really bad and they lose the Western Empire. But there's an irony in those later periods that for a Roman army, you're more likely to fight a big battle against another Roman army than you are against a foreign opponent. So that tends to dominate how it's organized, how it's deployed. So there are different periods. There are different types of enemies, different situations. Different political systems. Obviously, an emperor is trying to avoid civil wars, so he doesn't want some general to go off and get lots of glory and credit and make lots of soldiers love him in the way they like Julius Caesar and be willing to back him to become a rival. So one Roman emperor manages to get killed by the Goths. One gets captured by the Persians. Nearly all the others in the 3rd and 4th centuries die violently, but at the hands of other Romans. So that gives you an impression of the sort of the context of it all. But there are these big, big changes. And then later you have the Eastern Empire facing up against the Sassanid Persians. And then from the 7th century, when the rise of the Arab armies come, then you've, you know, you've got different opponents and your empire has shrunk to be much, much smaller at that point. I guess this is where we can also see a real change in function and use as well. So we've had a question from Swede in Hungary from X, which was formerly Twitter, who's asked about if a soldier could time travel between these different periods. Say we had one from the 5th century and they time travelled back a little bit earlier. Would they still recognise any similarities or would it be a completely different look almost? In technological terms, it's less different than, say, somebody going back 500 years now to matchlock muskets and pikes and all that sort of thing from modern technology. There's less of that, but there are big differences. The army earlier on, the army of the sort of first, second and third centuries AD, builds all the big bases, the forts like Hausteds on Hadrian's Wall, famous Vindolanda south of it, not far from where I live, Kylian, the base of Second Augusta Legion, this huge fortress, 10 times bigger. There was that infrastructure there, which is gone by the late period. And there are different styles of equipment. You're still using, you know, basically various types of spears, but the designs change. Your swords tend to be longer than they had been in the past. You don't have, you know, on any documentary about the Romans in any period, you will have reenactors with the segmented armor made famous by the Ermine Street Guard and others marching up and down in the background because that's what most reenactment groups do. That stuff, there seem to be some people still making it in Spain, but not very well in the fourth century, but it's gone long ago and was never universal in the first place. But it's something that we think of as that's a Roman soldier, you know, it jumps out straight away, has gone. On the other hand, there's probably a lot of tradition in the same way with a, you know, modern British army. There's lots of tradition that comes through. And it's quite striking at the end of the sixth century AD, 
we have a manual that's known as Morris's Strategicon, produced by the Eastern Roman Empire, the Byzantines. And it's nearly all about cavalry tactics and all the things we don't associate with the Romans, but they're doing now. And it's also written in Greek because Greek is the language of the Eastern Empire. But the words of command are in transliterated Latin. So you're still telling people to, you don't tell them to turn left, you tell them to turn towards their shield, or right, they turn towards their spear, because they think in a slightly different way. But you're doing it in a language that nobody speaks anymore, <laughs> because that's how the army's always done it. But there's that sense of continuity, in the same way you've got emperors who are still calling themselves Caesars and Romans, even though they don't control Rome anymore. So there are odd mixtures of tradition and continuity, but also fashions change. You're wearing trousers in a way that you weren't. That would have been seen as something barbaric and effeminate in the first century BC. How shocking. But that's now normal. So it's a mixture of everything. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cashback on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply. (sighs) Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save 40% site-wide. 40% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Now, this leads me on to a question that we've had on Facebook, and they've asked about the specific innovations either in strategy or technology that led to the success of the Romans, at least for some length of time. What was the secret to their success? Well, the odd thing is the one thing they boast about more than anything else is copying from other people. So they say they take their armor from the Gauls, the sword is Spanish, the phalanx formation they learned from the Etruscans. And it's this sort of Roman belief that, well, you do something good, we'll copy it and we'll make more of them. And there is a flexibility. I mean, the the Romans make lots of mistakes and there are some really large-scale military disasters that come along in Rome's history. I mean, if if you look at the Battle of Cannae, Hannibal probably kills 50,000 Roman and allied soldiers in one day, one afternoon, a couple of square miles, and captures another 20,000. You know, these are staggering losses, but they don't quit. The Romans have this belief that the only place you can succeed is Rome. And that gives them military strength because they just don't quit. They see everything in this sort of personal life or death struggle. So either at the end of this, we don't exist or you don't exist, or you're a subordinate ally of ours. And their other genius, which is related to the military side, but slightly different, is if you think of America as the great melting pot to bringing people from all over the world and turning them into this common culture, Rome is the only empire that goes out and does that to the people they occupy. So every Roman army at any period is never more than 50% Roman. And Roman gets defined pretty broadly as time goes on. It's always at least half and often more allied troops and foreigners and people who might become Roman. And they're your enemies of the last generation, fight the wars of this generation, and then the people they help you defeat, you recruit them as well. So they're marvelous at absorbing people to the point where you have emperors from Spain, from North Africa, from Syria by the second, third centuries, but they're Roman and it's a legal status. And they don't think in the same way that most other states have. And most other empires, you know, you very much have this elite that's imposed or colonists that remain that way. With the Romans, you don't. You make as many of at least the well-to-do locally join you and become Roman. And they buy into the system so that when the Roman Empire does fall in the West in the fifth century, 
There's nobody, say, in Britain or Spain who's desperate to be British or a Spaniard and wants their independent country because you just don't remember. The Romans have been there for so many centuries and you've brought in Rome now means civilization and political sophistication, cultural sophistication, religion by that time as well, Christianity. And everything else is darkness and bad. There isn't another sort of system on offer. You know, the casualties that Hannibal inflicts on the Romans would have defeated any other state. They would have come to terms and said, right, it's a fair cop, Gov. What do you want from us? You know, dictate terms to us. We'll give in, just as the Persians do when Alexander the Great defeats them in three battles. It's sort of, okay, that's it. Fair enough. You're in charge now. The Romans just won't do that until very, very late when the empire is very weak. And they learn from mistakes militarily. So they copy the strategies of others. And you can see in a lot of campaigns, you can see it in Caesar's accounts, they'll do something the the traditional way. It doesn't work. So then they think, okay, let's try this. Maybe that doesn't work. You modify it. And they'll fight big battles against enemies they think they can defeat that way. But if they can't, they'll avoid the big battle and they'll harass you and wear you down that way. So they get you one way or the other. And somewhere like Britain, you can see a change from a big Roman army fights the organized confederation of tribes in the southeast. Then it breaks up into smaller columns to fight a smaller tribe. And then they'll divide again when you're dealing with much more local authority. So there's always two sides in these wars and everybody, the other sides contribute to the way it's fought and how you win it and how you lose it. So it's stubbornness and flexibility, I think. They're very aggressive as well in the way they think about things. I guess from this, could we talk a little bit about how the Roman army was structured? And this kind of links in as well. We've had a question on Instagram from Medina G. Martin, who's asked about the size of the Roman army. And I guess we can talk about that as a high point and at its low points as well. Well, if you think, obviously, everyone's heard of the Roman legion and Roman legionaries. Well, originally, legion just means levy. And it was all Roman citizens, when Rome was just one small city, that would be called out and they'd go and fight for a few weeks against, you know, they fight a 10-year war against Vei that's less than 10 miles away. It's all very local because this is when it's a tiny little community. That expands as Rome gets bigger because they absorb all these others. The people they defeat become Latin citizens, they become Romans. So you end up with more and more Romans, you end up with more than one war going on. So you divide the legion and the legion becomes a unit which it will then be for more than a 1,000 years. It develops as a unit of, in theory, about 5,000-ish, but its organization varies depending on which period you're talking about. Now, early on, every Roman citizen with enough property to buy the equipment, when the state calls on you, you turn up and you might get picked and you go off and you've got this obligation to fight for at least 16 campaigns during your life. You might not have to do that many, but that's the state can ask you. So it's a mixture of a sort of militia and a conscript force. At that time, the army changes every year. The Senate sits down and decides for 12 months, because that's a political cycle, how many legions do we want this year? How many allies do we want? Where are we going to send them? Who's going to be in charge? Which elected magistrate will be in charge? So the army goes from quite small one year, you know, 20,000 to... 100,000, 200,000 plus in the wars against Carthaginians. You know, when you're fighting Hannibal and you're suffering these appalling losses, you're replacing, there might be 25 legions in service at one time, plus as many allies. And these are all volunteers. You know, these are not professional soldiers. However, once you start to acquire provinces like Spain, like Macedonia, and you need to garrison them, it's a bit rough for a farmer to say, well, go off to Spain for 10 years and just hope that the, you know the, your family's all right when you get back and your farm's still working. So there is a move over time for more and more volunteers to just say, I'm going to make the army not a career as such, but a stepping stone to something better. And soldiers who don't have property but would like to be given a farm for the service they've done to the state or given money, something like that. This will develop into the professional army of the imperial period of Caesar Augustus and afterwards, the Caesars really. That's the one that builds all these permanent bases, that builds these monuments that we can see archaeologically. And these are people who serve in the army for 25 years. You've still got legions. You've got around about 30 of them by the end of the first century AD. And they're still, in theory, about 5,000 strong. You've got at least as many, probably a bit more auxiliary troopers, naval squadrons, because the navy isn't formally separate from the army. It's all the sort of the Roman military. It's just that some of it needs boats, basically. So you're talking, the usual estimate is 300 to 350,000 people in, say, the time of Hadrian. So, you know, 120s AD, 
that sort of time. The auxiliaries sort of go up and down a bit more. Every now and again, a legion is either destroyed or disbanded, doesn't necessarily get replaced quickly. Sometimes if they add new territory, they'll raise another one or two. For a long time, they still raise new legions in Italy, but actually most of the recruits are then coming from Roman citizens, but from Gaul, from Africa, from Syria, wherever it might be. Then later on, there's a big debate because we have this document from around about the year 400 called the Notitia Dignitatum that lists this huge number of units and gives a little painting. They're medieval copies of the shield design they were supposed to have. And it's a wonderful thing, but it wasn't produced by the army. It was produced by the civil service. And it's more about how many people there are out there that should exist and that should get the privileges of being commander of this particular regiment. You've still got legions around then, but they seem to be about a 1,000 strong, much smaller. However, there is an argument. A lot of people who specialize in that period reckon that the army by this time is about 600,000 strong on paper. So it's got bigger. And their argument is, well, the empire's facing more threats. It's breaking up. Therefore, they need this. And they, the, the tax burden of paying for this becomes too much. And that's, I'm not sure I buy it. I think they've got more units, but I'm not sure they've actually got more people. In the same way, whenever in the, you know, the modern era, some government will slash the size of the armed forces, but they'll tell you it's leaner, it's more efficient, it's better equipped. And obviously as well, the big thing you've got to add in with an army of this era is it's not just human beings, it's the animals, it's the horses, it's the mules, it's the, the cavalry mounts, the pack trains, the equipment. So that's another big expense. And again, you don't necessarily pay for it all the time. You think, well, there'll be enough warning. We'll be able to sort of get what we need when the time comes. So... Those are the sort of what the rule of thumb figures we've got, but bear in mind, it isn't quite as simple as that. Probably life in the ancient world is just as complicated and confusing and not quite what it should be as life is today. Thank you so much. That answered several questions that we've actually had in from listeners as well. Lots about whether recruitment drives, whether it was an obligation or, or mandatory or people could sign up. So that's absolutely perfect. Thank you. There's an interesting little story from the early 2nd century AD when we assume most of the army is volunteers because it's professional. You know, you sign up for 25 years, you think nobody's going to want to do that unless they're really desperate. Or they're from a martial society, some of the tribes that have been conquered that actually think of this as an honourable way of service and maybe there's not much to do at home. But a chap called Pliny the Younger is governor of Bithynia, which is northern Turkey, and some slaves are brought to him who've enlisted in the Roman army. Now, slaves aren't allowed to volunteer because they're slaves. They're somebody's property. They don't have the rights of a free man. If they've been freed, they can join the navy, but nothing else. The navy sort of has different standards to the others. And Pliny goes to the emperor and says, well, what should I do with these people? And it's interesting because it divides them up into three types of recruits. There are your volunteers. And if these slaves have volunteered knowing they're slaves, then in that case, they're culpable because it's their fault. They knew they were committing a crime. Or they could be conscripts, in which case it's the fault of the man who enlisted them because he should have checked to find out whether they were qualified or not, not just taken any warm body and said, yeah, fine, fair enough, this is my quota. The other option is that they were replacements. So somebody's been conscripted and their father or their mother has come along and said, look, I don't want little Johnny to go off into the army. So here's some money to buy him out to pay for somebody else to go instead, in which case it's the fault of whoever provided them as replacements. So you've got this one situation that tells us quite a lot about how recruitment worked. And it's just a letter from a governor to the emperor Trajan who replies saying, yeah, you've done the right thing. That's how you should treat them. So it could be the slave's fault. It could be the man who recruited them, or it could be the person who plucked these poor devils out and said, right, you're going in the army instead of my kids, sort of thing. So all of those options are possible, but it, it varies from time to time. And it's hard for us to know the proportion. You also get, there's an interesting group in the imperial period who we only find them usually when they're listed as their place of origin is in castries, which means in the camp. And although soldiers aren't able to contract a legal marriage for the first two centuries AD, because the state doesn't want to pay for their families, clearly lots of them have families. And then the children, the boys enlist in the legions because they've grown up around the camp. They know what's going on. So the army thinks, well, this is actually a good thing. It's a source of recruits. They know what they're doing. So they're officially acknowledging something that shouldn't be happening. And they just say, well, yeah, he was just born in the camp. That's where he's come from. So again, from this, you can get a picture of all the differences of how the army works and just the diversity of where people come from. There's so much I want to tap into in what we've just been speaking about. Honestly, I've got lots of questions for you. But firstly, before I ask you all of those, could I just say, ask were there any benefits to being in the Roman army? Did it offer a certain sense of kudos? 
again, it depends which period you're looking at. In the early days, it's about respect amongst your neighbours because it's an obligation as a Roman citizen. And it's singled out that at the end of a campaign or battle, the commander gives out decorations and rewards, like wreaths to wear on your head or donor, these sort of medals that they'd wear. Now, in that period, you can wear them whenever there's a festival. And you can go out. And again, your neighbors are going to know, were you the one who was the first to run away at that battle or were you the one who went forward? So it's a lot about reputation, but it isn't a tangible thing. You are paid, but it's essentially pocket money to sort of just subsistence level. That lasts for a long time. Julius Caesar is able to double the salary and it's still not very high. By the imperial period, the professional army, you're earning a bit less than a laborer as a daily rate. But you can guarantee you get that every day of the year. You can guarantee that you've got a roof over your head. The state feeds you. They have a bathhouse in the camp. So it's a little bit like, you know, you look back at Regency or Victorian Britain, the sort of people who are joining the army then who are taking a red coat. It's often uh, compared to the alternative. And even in relatively recent periods, when factories or mines were closed, army recruiting parties would turn up because you know there's people, well, you know, I've lost my job. What do I do now? So there's always that element. In the imperial period, you can, in theory, you can go from being an ordinary soldier to become a centurion, to become an equestrian, a knight, which is the sort of the social class lower than the Senate, but still pretty important people. But that's probably going to take you a long time. You might do it in more than one generation. A few people do it in one go. The pay is sort of okay, but not spectacular. But again, it depends which sort of community you come from. If you come from one of the settled provinces, there are probably better paid alternatives. You know, it's the Emperor Tiberius complains that only tramps are joining up in Italy because nobody else will join the. But in areas where you've got communities that have been founded as colonies for veteran soldiers in the period where they're giving out land at the end of your service, you often seem to have a tradition. So you get this in North Africa, you get this in southern France, Gaul, that area, Galatia, parts of Syria. The city that become Beirut is a, is a Roman colony. Lots of people sort of seem to follow in the family tradition and go off and join the army. So it depends. You've also got the senior officers are all coming from the very well-to-do, and this is a big stepping stone to local politics or to imperial politics. So it depends very much on when and who you are. There's a nice papyrus letter from Egypt of this man talking about he's writing home after joining the army. And he says, you know, I'm so glad you gave me a great education because I'm working in the offices whilst all the friends I was with are breaking rocks in the quarry outside. So education helped. Letters of recommendation helped. The most common form of any writing from the Greco-Roman world is a letter of recommendation saying, you know, treat this person as if I'm standing before you. And that works in the army as well. You know, the, the satirist Juvenal talks about a recruit turning up with letter of recommendation from the war guard Mars and, you know, Venus and this sort of thing and how that will do his career. So it depends on your standpoint who you are. There are cases where soldiers throw their weight around, pick on civilians, but how common that is is a bit harder to tell. You can see the evidence in more than one way, but a lot depends on who you are. But if you are... And you know, join the auxiliary soldier for the first century and the start of the second century. At the end of your 25 years, a mere 25 years, of course, you become a Roman citizen. So that's a major step up legally. And again, a sign of how the state is winking at something that it said is illegal, but knows it's going on. You get citizenship for yourself and your first wife and all the children with that wife. Even though you're not supposed to have a wife, they clearly say, well, yeah, obviously you have because, you know, people are people. What do you expect? It's, it's 25 years, for goodness sake. So, again, there are rewards. It depends on who you are, really, and where you are, whether this is a good deal or not. But you also have problems with desertion in many periods. So, clearly, there are some who find the discipline is extremely harsh. The punishments can be savage. And, you know, it probably could be as boring as anything as well, being stuck in some of these places for long periods, eating them. Yes, it's a regular diet, but it's probably going to be pretty monotonous as well. And you might just think, well, blow this, let's go, you know, as people clearly do. Do we know if there were any official guidelines or requirements for the people who should be serving, perhaps in terms of age or what they actually wanted from those particular men? Again, it varies a little bit, although 16 is, is clearly seems to be a minimum legal age. Sometimes it's 18, and you try not to recruit too much older than 40. But 
there are exceptions. You know, there are people who sneak in in the same way that, you know, I had a great uncle in the First World War who the family tradition says, you know, go around the corner and come back as 18 when he, he tried to enlist at 16. Those sorts of things happen. But there is an emphasis in the period of professional army, you will go before a medical inspection before you're actually allowed to take the sort of the equivalent of the king's shilling, which is three gold coins worth 75 denarii. So it's about a quarter of your annual pay. But just like the king's shilling, there's going to be loads of deductions from that they don't tell you about until you've signed on the dotted line and taken the oath. There is a tradition always that country boys made the best recruits. Try to avoid tradesmen, try to avoid people from the cities because they're less hardy. There are height restrictions. One of the staggering things is, again, it comes from a late manual that draws on earlier documents, is that you're supposed to be five foot ten in Roman feet and inches, but it's about just over five foot eight in our side to get into the legions. And if you want to be in the cavalry or in the first cohort of a legion, you're supposed to be over five foot ten. Now, given that the average height is unlikely to be much higher than five six, five seven. You have to wonder to meet the height standard. He's just padded up the things inside. So I suspect they're all these dodgy. I doubt the recruiting officers could afford to be as picky as that too often. You also have, there are certain groups like the Batavians from modern-day Holland, who are Germans who've sort of been exiled across the Rhine and settled there. They form in separate units in the first century that will only be commanded by their own officers and there's a sense you're basically taking these warriors and encouraging them to do what they would have done and causing a nuisance to everybody. Go and do it against the enemies of the empire. And it's, it's almost like the sort of principle of someone who keeps a Rottweiler or something like this. The idea, you know, Tacitus, the historian, describes them as like armor and weapons only used in war. And you have these quite shocking images on Trajan's column, this big monument in Rome, of Roman auxiliaries headhunting, taking the severed heads of enemies and presenting them to the Emperor Trajan. There's even one that's really quite, you know, to us, bizarre of this fellow who's fighting. And in his teeth, he's got the hair of a head that he's chopped off one of the Dacians, and he's still fighting more of them. So they sort of, they go for what we want. You know, let's have our own barbarians to take. They're even more savage than the barbarians that, you know, you've got sort of thing. So there are, again, there's a lot of variety because the empire is drawing on people from all over the empire, lots of different societies. And for some of them, this might be a way to be a warrior, which is something your community has always admired, and you're just doing it for the Romans, but it's still fighting people and proving how brave you are. I wonder, what was the promotion structure like for, say, was there opportunity to rise up the ranks? Could a lowly commoner become someone incredibly significant? Yes, in theory. And... In the early days, you actually elected your centurions, or at least some of them, and some of them were appointed. But again, that's when everybody's a Roman citizen and you're all serving together. Later on, we have, there are 20, 20 or 30 or so men who list on monuments, they set up often their tombstones, that they joined in the ranks and they became a centurion and sometimes a senior centurion. There are lots of others who say that they became, they went from the equestrian order. So, you know, near the top of Roman society were directly commissioned as a centurion. Most never tell us. They just tell us, I was an officer, I was a centurion, and they don't tell us how they got there, which leads scholars, there has been a long tradition to see centurions as sort of sergeant major types. You know, they're the pick of those in the ranks, and they're the sort of people that run the British army and always have. And, you know, even as a territorial, they're they're really impressive people. That may be imposing a very modern idea, because it's the assumption is that nobody mentions their service in the ranks because they're sort of ashamed of it. They want to be seen as one of the, you know, the established gentry. On the other hand, are the ones who actually tell us boasting of an incredible achievement by grit of skill, of courage, of all these things, of luck. So we have the evidence. It's very hard to tell. You certainly, to be at that level of the army, you need a very high standard of literacy because you've got to do all sorts of administrative jobs as well as the straightforward military ones. But there again, the problem is we don't know what levels of literacy were like amongst the wider population. So how many of your recruits had that skill. Did the army teach them to read and write? Because the army needs lots of clerks and administrators and this sort of thing. There's some evidence coming out from Egypt where people are saying, actually, they might be doing this. And it's interesting that both at Vindolanda, just south of Hadrian's Wall, and Masada, on the back or on the side of documents, one on papyrus, one on wooden writing tablet, somebody scrawled just one line of Virgil's Aeneid in Latin. And you're wondering, well, is somebody just practicing a writing exercise? Because this was a sort of like Shakespeare, it's a school text. So it would make sense for the army to teach people. It's just having direct evidence of it. One of the biggest problems we face is that 
all the things that everybody took for granted in the ancient world, they never bothered to write down. So lots of things that are just normal. And what do you think of when you say, you know, I joined the army, what are my prospects of promotion? Are they good? Are they bad? We just don't know because nobody tells us. We're left with guessing from the sort of glimpses of the end product. But you do have a striking case is the Emperor Pertinax, who people have seen the movie Gladiator. He succeeds Commodus. After he's murdered, Pertinax is the son of a former slave. And he tried to get a commission as a centurion, but been turned down and became a schoolmaster. And then later does get a commission at a slightly more senior level. But he ends up progressing from that to be a senator, to be chosen as the sort of least offensive member of the Senate, but still plausible as emperor to take over. I mean, he gets murdered within three months, but nevertheless, that's through a bad decision. So you can have this staggering rise from in two generations, from being a slave to being emperor. But again, that's probably exceptional. A lot more people will go, they'll sort of, you know, the family will gradually move upwards, I think. Speaking about illiteracy, what do we know about the training, per se? How much training would you expect to receive and what would it look like? It, again, will vary depending on the period. Back in the old sort of militia army, you're assumed to come ready trained. But even then, the best Roman commanders are the ones who train their men before they risk leading them into battle. There are various training regimes... One of the interesting things is that when training is, is sort of formally introduced in the first century, the methods are copied from the gladiatorial schools in terms of weapons handling, because they've had to take slaves with no knowledge and learn how to use a sword. So they fence against a wooden post about six foot high and you practice different cuts, you strengthen yourself, you train using a wicker shield and a wooden sword that are both designed to be heavier than the real thing in the same way that boxers might train with sort of weights around their calves and things to strengthen their feet. So the idea is you build up muscle. There's a lot of physical fitness as well as straightforward training. The historian Josephus, writing in the first century AD, who is one of those rare people who actually fought against the Roman army, but then changes sides in the Jewish rebellion and ends up writing from Rome. He talks about, it's an exaggeration, but the Roman army's drills are like bloodless battles, and then their battles are like bloodstained drills, you know, this sort of thing. And you do hear there are some interesting, there's some inscriptions from North Africa where Hadrian has been reviewing units of the provincial army there and talks to each one in turn and he praises their officers. And it's, I remember getting when I was in the OTC at, at university, it's the same sort of pep talk you'd have at the end of an exercise where it's basically well done chaps, but then there's, and you could do this better or you could do that, but that was really good. But this is the sort of stuff where nothing survives that gives us a very clear idea of this is how you do it because everybody knew at the time. And there were textbooks and manuals as to how to do this. So we don't necessarily know just how long you'd move, you know, from being a sort of a tyro, a trainee, before you'd qualify. And probably it would depend. If they're desperate, if there's a major war going on, you're probably going to get rushed through. Also, the professional army gets used to the labor force. It builds roads. It, it builds Hadrian's Wall. We get a lot of evidence for the Roman army's presence because they like stamping the unit name on roof tiles that they made for some civilian projects. So... There's loads of other stuff to do as well that's going on. The army is a police force, sometimes administrators. So all of that has to somehow fit in with the military training as well. So a lot depends on where. And there is a tendency when a war starts that units aren't really that well prepared and they aren't as well trained as they should be, which again is something pretty familiar for most of history. What did an average day look like? Can we say there was an average day? Again, depending on where you were, but assuming you're in one of these permanent bases, you'd be roused by trumpet calls, you'd have a breakfast, a starting meal, you'd have a meal later in the day. We have a duty roster from a legionary century, that's the sort of the company size formation, slightly small, that would be commanded by a centurion, in a legion in Egypt that lists things like you're cleaning out the latrines, you're on guard at the gate, you're escort for this, you're cleaning the centurion's shoes is one of the things listed. You actually look at it and think you could put this up in a barrack block today and change a few of the words and basically it's the same sort of thing because each person is listed on this day of the week you're doing that. But it would stand next to other documents that would tell you, okay, there's a formal parade now at this time, kit inspection, whatever it might be, cleaning your room, you know, these sorts of things. So there are these routines. There are, there's a morning assembly and orders that in the headquarters building, the Principia, which every fort has, unless it's a really, really tiny one. And there are in the Vindlander tablets, these writing tablets that date to sort of turn of century late 90s, early 100s AD from 
It's the time just before they've built, generation before you've built Hadrian's Wall. And they're very formulaic. There's clearly, you report, and the sort of the centurion's deputies, the optiones and the curatores for the cavalry troops, they report that, you know, this is our strength today. This is everyone who's fit. Everything is where it should be, our baggage, our equipment, all this. Very formulaic. From Syria, from Jury Europus, we get the, the watchword for the day. This is the password being issued at this point. So you get these glimpses from records, and they're writing all this stuff down. Only a tiny, tiny fraction survives because when it's been dumped somewhere and still preserved. So the army runs on paperwork or wooden writing tablets, papyrus, whatever it might be. So there's an awful lot of this writing, recording. You have, in all major bases, you have a hospital. And, you know, there will be people on the sick list moving in, moving out. So it's all there. It's very, very modern in many respects, at least the glimpses we get. But then there are other aspects that are surprising. So again, at Vindolanda, because of the state of preservation, they found that the floors of the barracks are covered in matting, which is rushes and hay and straw. And what they did when it got dirty was rather than clean it all out, they just put another layer on top. So it builds up. And then when the fort's demolished, as they are successively, that's how it's preserved, it's sealed in. But the excavators find shoes that have been lost in this matting. They find quite big objects. So it suggests rather than, you know, you think now a modern barrack block, it's going to be pristine, closely inspected, everything polished, everything cleaned. These barracks actually look pretty grubby and poorly lit. But is that peculiarity of these units that are stationed there? Or is it simply a peculiarity because of the state of preservation that we see it here, but we don't see it in all the other forts? Thank you. That was a question from Gary Craig on X. But if you went to a hospital at this camp or at this fort, what were your chances of survival? What was medical care like? By the standards of the ancient world, it's pretty good. And the point is, it's there. That's that's one of the big differences compared to, you know, we talked about the pay of our ordinary legionary, and it doesn't compare that well to a farm labourer, but he gets all these perks. He is looked after. Many of the spas that are established in the big bathhouses, like Bath in Britain, but there are others in the Rhineland that will later go on to continue into the modern era, they're often created by the Roman army for the convalescence of soldiers. So they do look after you, but there are lots of things they don't understand. You do find there are records from papyri in Egypt of men being discharged on health grounds, back problems, eye problems, this sort of thing. And you could be honorably discharged that way and get all the perks of serving the full time. Probably it's the best care you could get unless you were wealthy. So that's an important stage. On the other hand, you find, for instance, there's advice in some of the medical texts that if you want to learn about anatomy, then become a doctor either to a gladiatorial school or to the Roman army, because that gives you access to corpses. You you can start poking things around, which you couldn't do in civilian life quite so easily. There are obviously serious periods of epidemics, plagues in the second century, this sort of thing that hit the army particularly badly, because rather like crowded cities, if you look at, you go to any of these fort sites, whether it's Housesteads, Kalyan, wherever it might be, the barrack blocks look as if they'd be pretty crowded. It's like a mini city. You've packed lots of people in. When these things strike, because the nature of an army, and also because you can move people around from one end of the empire to the other, that can bring them into contact with all sorts of things they don't have any immunity to. So... It varies. I think on the whole, in the period of the greatest sophistication of the army, first, second, early third centuries AD, medical care is not bad, but again, by ancient standards. So better than nothing, probably a lot better than most people had if you were poor. But again, 21st century, you wouldn't want to change our ways of doing things for pretty much anything in the past, really, until comparatively recently. On another note of basic survival needs, We've had lots of listeners sending questions surrounding food and drink. What did the average Roman soldier eat and drink? How was that supplied to them? And what did the daily average of food proportioning look like? It seems not bad, although we tend to get sort of rations for when you're on campaign, which might be slightly different and might have to spread to include servants and people as well. There's an old myth that the Roman army and Roman legions were basically vegetarian. That's not true, although there are a few exceptions. There are a few sites, like there's one on the Antonine Wall, which is north of Hadrian's Wall in Scotland, where 
everybody seems to have been eating a lot of roughage. There's no sign of meat at all, but they ate a lot of roughage. And even to the point where the remains in the latrines were quite well preserved, a lot of these people have probably eaten too much roughage and had stomach trouble. Now, whether that was a group from a particular area who had a taboo against eating meat, you don't quite know. Again, because you've got at least half the army and more is recruited from non-citizens, they're from loads of different communities from inside and sometimes outside the empire. You also notice that more generally, auxiliary sites, their forts, which tend to be sort of further out towards the fringes of the empire, you don't find much pork there or traces of pig meat. The legionaries seem to have liked pork, which is, again, more popular in Italy than it is elsewhere, but may have been preserved as this is something you eat when you're a legionary much later. Auxiliaries eat more lamb, more mutton, more beef is generally, you know, it crops up. Anyway, you also notice the luxuries, you know, they get the mussels and things like that, and the oysters you find commonly up on Hadrian's wall sites. So they are transporting them up there. And you look at Vindolanda in the late first century AD, it's on the very edge of the Roman world. By about 100, 106, there's almost no bases further north. And yet you can get all the goods and all the food types and all the wines there that you could get anywhere in the empire. You might have to wait, but it's plugged into that imperial system. And people, you know, and a lot of the Vindlander tablets are concerned with buying food and this sort of thing. Now, many of them are probably come from the commander's house and his family. So again, you're wealthier. And there's, you know, at least one that's, that's largely dealing with eggs. They seem to have consumed an awful lot of eggs. It would always depend on where you were. All the legionary bases pretty much are on a navigable river. So you can bring stuff to them. Auxiliary outposts tend to be a bit harder to get to, but even so, all of them have the conventionally called granaries, but you can see these very distinctive buildings, two, three more of them. And there's talk of, you know, being able to preserve enough grain to feed the garrison for two years, 18 months, this sort of thing. So again, food supply, all of these bases, we call them forts. And that sounds a bit as if they're a defensive thing. And they do have a wall around them and they've got towers and they've got ditches and all this sort of thing. If you look at a Roman army fort or fortress, what jumps out is the rows and rows of accommodation, barrack blocks, stables, storage, granaries, headquarters building. It's a place people live. It's like a garrison town rather than a sort of military base where you're expecting to fight. It's really where the army lives and you go out and you operate somewhere else. So your food there is probably quite good. On campaign, it's going to vary with what you can transport. And there's a case where Caesar's men, the only thing available is meat, and they complain about this, but they don't complain because they're eating meat, but because they're eating only meat. It's a balanced diet is there. The officers particularly have access to very good quality wine. Soldiers are probably drinking Posca, this cheaper sort of vinegary stuff, most of the time, and watered as well, because it's, as in most of the ancient world, it's safer than drinking just water and you've weakened it so it's not going to get you too drunk too quickly, though obviously those options are available as well. But again, another very nice piece from one of the Vindlander tablets, this Decurion, a commander of a cavalry troop, reports to the commander of his unit at Vindlander and say, do I send half the men back as ordered? There's a little note at the end that it's send more beer. <laughs> so, so Vesser, again, in Northern Europe, partly because all the people you're recruiting are from the northern tribes where this is what you drink. But also, you know, in the same way, people going off to India in the 18th, 19th century bring back the idea of curry to Britain. You often find the locals something, oh, this is good. So it, it, again, you've got all those mixtures. I wanted to ask you about campaigns and how this exactly worked. We've had a question from Adrian Smith on Facebook who's asked about how widely an average soldier would have travelled. Um, and I guess, could we tie that in with how long would they be on campaign for and maybe what their experience would be like? Again, so much depends on when and where because some areas were more dangerous than others, more likely to be war. One of the big problems is that if there are minor operations, skirmishes on the frontier, then it's probably not going to make it into the history books. It's quite interesting that Ammianus Marcellinus, writing in the 4th century, says he won't talk about anything that involves fewer than 400 men because they're just too frequent. So in some areas, in some frontier areas, it does rather suggest the fact that the Roman army deploys in all these frontier areas suggests they think there's a problem because these soldiers are expensive to maintain and they're dangerous because they might all get together, appoint their leader as a rival emperor and rebel against you. So, you, you know, you don't pay for this and, and risk this unless you have to. 
And of course, the arrival of lots of these Roman army bases might well provoke friction with the local communities, disrupt the politics of an area so it can make an area more warlike than it was, only for the Romans to say, well, they're just the road of barbarians that are always fighting each other anyway, because they don't know what it was like before they got there. So there's all this complexity going on. In your 25 years service, there is probably a reasonable chance some people never got involved in any sort of battle, or maybe perhaps a riot in one of the big cities if they were nearby, but not that. There's, again, a letter from Egypt of a man who's recovering in hospital after being hit with a brick in Alexandria during a riot. On the other hand, there are probably other people who go from one desperate fight to another. And, you know, from your point of view, if you get killed or wounded in a skirmish involving 10 people in some, you know, frontier that no one's ever heard of, that's just as dangerous as being in the most famous battle of the Punic Wars, as far as you're personally concerned. Rebellions tend to occur inside the empire at least once within a generation or so of conquest, but then don't happen afterwards. You get slightly more than that in Judea, but the last big rebellion under Hadrian there isn't a big nationalist rebellion then for the rest of the Roman period, for various reasons. Britain, you have the big rebellion under Boudicca in 61 AD. And then, as far as we can tell, the southeast is pretty much peaceful, other than outbreaks of civil war. But there aren't people rebelling, wanting to overthrow the Romans. So there are lots of areas where soldiers might be as administrators, policemen, builders, where there's not much chance of that sort of violence. But on the other hand, you get intensive periods. And from the third century onwards, there's a pattern you see on Roman frontiers from the Republic where a war will often start when somebody raids your allies or a community you protect. And if you don't go and do something unpleasant to the people who did it, then more will come in because they'll be perceived as vulnerable and more and more. So things tend to escalate and maybe your allies will start thinking, well, the Romans don't protect us. Maybe I should go and ask some chieftain over here and get him to do so. So Raiding is much more common than big battles and major campaigns, and particularly once you don't have too many organized states in contact with the Roman Empire. Everything is much more local. These are warrior societies where everybody does what they want. So you might find yourself involved in lots of these small skirmishes that build up into, we need to have a big, you know, again, the way of dealing with this, if it gets out of hand, is you send an army north and you go and burn down houses, you steal people's cattle, you in kill some, enslave some which might temporarily terrorize them, but in the long term, they're not going to like you. So when their sons grow up, they're going to think, well, I don't like those Romans, and those Romans don't look as strong anymore. So the way you try and dominate the frontiers in some ways probably make sure that wars simmer along and they keep happening. And the Romans don't really believe in peaceful coexistence with anybody. It's about you respect us or you suffer. So it can vary a lot. And you get into later periods in some of the civil wars. Some people will see an awful lot of service it's interesting, though, that at the end of Julius Caesar's campaigns in Gaul, he talks about two legions that have seen, I think it's seven or eight years service, and he still doesn't quite see them as as good as the veteran units he had at the start. Now, we've had one question from Instagram, and they've asked, is it true that soldiers resented being sent to Britain? Or is there a favourite place, may I ask? No, it's not true. It's one of those myths. People sort of stand there up on Hadrian's Wall when, you know, I've been there in May and been snowed upon and this sort of thing. And you imagine some poor bloke from southern Italy shivering with his little sort of miniskirt tunic on. And none of that's true. He's probably not from Italy. He's wearing far more sense. We know they very quickly adapt the open sandals to enclosed boots in areas like Britain and Northern Europe because it's practical. They wear breeches, they wear trousers, they wear thick, you know, again, a preoccupation of Inlander is, is underclothes, is warm clothes. But no, there's not a shred of ancient evidence that Britain was considered a bad thing to do. In fact, for the senators, for the army commanders, it's a plum posting because it's one of the three big military provinces, the most prestigious ones in the entire empire with Syria and with Pannonia on the Danube because you get command the biggest army and therefore more chance of glory and success. And it's also a sign the emperor trusts you. So actually, it's a big deal. And there would be times if you're an ambitious officer without good connections, you probably want to go to the war zones. So trying to get posted and transferred to these units is what you actually want to do. So somewhere like Britain, which does have a lot of conflict, can be a good place to be. Again, so much depends. So no, they're not really. And they're coming because they're people. If you've come from Belgium, the Rhineland, Holland, this area, you know, Britain's not so very different. And a lot of the units stationed in the north, that's where they've been recruited. And over the long term, even if they've been recruited somewhere else earlier on, it's the closest source of recruits. So... Actually, you're probably closer to where you're going. 
there is, you see it earlier on in the Republic, and particularly the period of the first century BC, where the war you really want to go to is a war in the East, in Asia Minor or beyond, because it's the richest part of the world. And if you're going to fight a war, you think, I'm not paid very much, but I can come home with plunder. Who do I want to fight? The richest people around. So there's greater appeal, but there's also an appeal for wars against prestigious, famous opponents, this sort of thing. And probably you assume there were some senators as well who looked at the other point of view and said, well, that sounds a bit dangerous. I really don't want to go there. No, no, I'll stand back. I think you're the more experienced military man. You can do this this time. So there's a lot of variety, but there are clearly people who move very large distances. As units get permanent bases and they have their families, it takes quite an effort to uproot a whole legion and send it to the other end of the empire. It will often happen when the Emperor Trajan fights two big wars in Dacia, modern-day Romania, beyond the Danube. Detachments come from all over the empire, from Britain, from Syria, from Egypt, from all over. So you might get posted off as a detachment to an active war zone for a few years. You never know when a unit sends a detachment a long way away. Do they choose their very best men and their best soldiers and their best officers because they want to show off and say, this is the famous Second Augusta Legion from Britain, look how great we are. Or do you actually think, who are all the damn nuisances that I really want to get rid of for as long as possible and shift them off somewhere? You could see it in any human institution today. These can be seen as an opportunity for good or bad. It varies, but some people do move around. He's not necessarily a soldier, but there is a striking tombstone from South Shields, which is just south of Hadrian's Wall, the other side of the River Tyne. And it's to this woman called Regina, Queen or sort of Queenie. Now, she's from the Cacciavalone. She's a sort of Essex girl, basically, from just north of the Thames. And she was a freed woman and wife, Liberta et Coniuge. So she'd been a slave owned by this chap. And then he freed her and married her. Now, her husband is a fellow called Barates, who comes from the city of Palmyra, which is out in Syria. And you've got this depiction of her, this, you know, this local or localish from Southern British girl as a Roman matron. So you've got these two people from different ends of the earth who've ended up as a couple and then commemorated. Another inscription mentions a Barates who is either a standard bearer or perhaps a seller of standards. So he might be a military man, but it gives you an idea of just how cosmopolitan the world was. Goods are moving around, but people are moving around as well. And the army is one of the major ways of ensuring this happens, but it's the most organized way of doing it. So there's probably far more of these stories. And there's another interesting one. When Septimius Severus, the emperor from North Africa, campaigns in Northern Britain, lots of this distinctive pottery that's North African turns up in army bases. And they look very much like tagines, you know, the sort of Moroccan cooking now. And basically, it looks as if you've got troops from there that are part of his army he's brought with him. And they're just cooking this. And then locals think, oh, that's good. So they copy it. So again, there you're seeing glimpsing through the pottery, these individuals have moved. And they might only be there for a few months, a few years, and then move off somewhere else. But it is Some people probably are stuck in one outpost for 25 years. Lots of others move around an awful lot. Could you tell us a little bit about the general policy? Were Roman soldiers allowed to fraternise with locals? I presume there there was an element that they did. But what happened then if then the army moved? Did they have family at home, per se, now waiting on them, or could they take them with them? There are clearly cases. One of the most distinctive things, when Boudicca's rebels rebel, the Iceni and the Trinovantes in eastern England, what would become eastern England in 60 AD. Their first target is Canuladonum, the veteran settlement where you've dumped these former Roman soldiers, you've confiscated land from the locals and given them farms, and they haven't behaved very well. There's a surprise, you know, the people who just conquered this country. So there are cases of friction. There are reports, there are complaints in Egypt of soldiers, you know, abusing themselves. Even if you look in the New Testament, there's a comment when John the Baptist is asked by the soldiers, maybe Roman, maybe part of Herod's army, which is based on the auxiliary, what should you do to be good? And it's take nothing more than your due. And you get the implication that soldiers will sort of use their powers of requisition, throw their weight around and exploit the locals. So it can clearly be bad and it can be brutal. And after all, these are the invaders in many cases, the occupying power. But some of the evidence is difficult to read. So, for instance, there is in Talmudic Jewish sources from 3rd century and later a ruling where it's assumed that if a woman is captured by bandits, 
then she probably will have been respected. If she's been captured by soldiers, she probably will have been raped and has to go through various purification things. That's why it's there. Now, is that because that's how you genuinely expect these terrible Roman occupiers to behave? The only problem is, is that the rabbi writing this is living in a community where the bandits know everybody. So is it like a paramilitary group controlling an area so you don't say anything bad against them under any circumstances? Or is it genuine? We just don't know. However, what's very clear is that in lots of communities, the soldiers take local women as wives. And then there's some indication, particularly in places like Vindolanda, that you might be bringing family from home because you might end up as a soldier being the sort of the oldest man in the group. So there's a possibility that you bring your mother and your aunt and all the sort of the youngsters across as well as a wife. We know Roman soldiers get leave, but unfortunately we don't know how long for. But you clearly do marry local women as well, and these form liaisons that are stable. It's also, you know, archaeologically, there is a Roman outpost, a tower with a little stockade around it in southern Scotland from the 80s, 90s AD. At least one of them is within sight of an Iron Age roundhouse farm. Now, how do you interpret what it meant to be the people in either of those? Are the Romans this terrible occupying power sort of, you know, glaring at you all the time and a threat to you? Do they mistreat you? Or are they like a police station where you actually think these are people who will protect us if somebody comes to steal my sheep, my cows, this sort of thing? And anything in between, there's loads of gradations. In the same way, we don't really know how often, how safe is it for the Roman soldiers to come out of one of these outposts and walk around on their own? Or is that really dangerous and you're going to get shot full of arrows or whatever it might be? The archaeology, the literature, they only tell us so much. And we've got to sort of imagine what's going on. And really, all we can do is consider the range of possibilities. They're human beings. And if you've got 300, 350,000 of them, there'll be some people who probably would have been vicious murderers, criminals, bullies in civilian life, whatever they're doing. Perhaps more of those join the army than would, or people who've run away from trouble at home. It is notable that the only criminals banned from joining the army were those who'd been exiled to an island or condemned to the wild beasts. So, you know, that's talking pretty major crimes before you get that far. So thieves, petty criminals, yeah, fair enough, let's have those. They'll do less harm if we send them 500 miles, 1,000 miles away to the frontier. It's not our problem anymore. As a final question to you, I just wanted to ask you, there's a whole reputation surrounding the Roman army about the strict discipline. Now, is this true? Was decimation a real thing? And what were other punishments to say? Roman discipline is very strict from the beginning. And it's one of the striking things when you have this citizen army of these people who volunteer and go as part-time soldiers, they pretty much lose all the legal rights they've got, the substantial ones as a citizen, as a civilian, when they're in the army. So you can be beaten to death for stealing from a comrade, falling asleep on guard, this sort of thing. But it's this idea that you're all part of the same entity. You're led by people you've elected. So therefore, for a while, you suspend your rights because this is what the Republic requires. And that tradition of tight discipline comes on. The decimation is one of those things that, first of all, you need to make clear. And it's something that bugs me every time a journalist misuses this, which they do so often. Decimation means executing one in 10, not executing 90% and leaving one alive. So when they talk about this force was decimated, this army was decimated, well, you know, 10% loss is bad, but it's not crippling as a rule. And it was not imposed very often. There are a few cases, it's seen as sort of traditional, old-fashioned, tough discipline, you know, the sort of men we used to be, maybe we're not anymore. So there is a bit of that in it. It does happen, one of the notable cases is Crassus does this in the slave war against Spartacus, you know, when the gladiators have rebelled and lots of slaves and a unit breaks, part of that unit is decimated. So that, as I say, again, that means one in 10 is executed, normally beaten to death by the other nine, and then the rest are given a symbolic punishment. They're supposed to camp outside the rampart and be fed barley instead of wheat. Barley is what you give to the dirt poor or to slaves or to animals. So you get that instead until you've redeemed yourself. There's another case. Mark Antony does it to some units that ran away in his campaign in sort of Armenia and beyond into Medea, that area in the east. Happens to a unit under the Emperor Tiberius in the first century. But they're so unusual that they are things people talk about. And we get hints that actually 
the army can't afford to be as strict as it might like to be because you're just going to run out of soldiers later on. So we hear, for instance, of a commander in the first century under Nero who is especially strict because he executes deserters the first time they run away and get caught. Whereas clearly, normally, they're sort of thought, okay, slap on the wrist, come back, don't do it again. Because if we keep killing all these soldiers, you know, who's going to stay? And also, there's that danger. You've got to have a system of discipline that people will accept. Otherwise, everybody's going to mutiny or rebel. You know, one of the first targets in a mutiny that occurs in AD 14, after the death of the Emperor Augustus, unpopular officers get lynched. One of them is this centurion whose nickname is Cato Alteram, which means bring me another, fetch me another because his symbol of office was a vine cane or staff, and he's supposed to have sort of beaten soldiers on the back till it snapped and then bring me another one so I can keep doing it. All of these things are a balancing act, but the discipline is strict, but it probably isn't significantly stricter than the discipline in a lot of armies, particularly in, say, the 19th, 18th centuries. So yes, there's flogging. Yes, there is capital punishment. But on the other hand, there's also a lot of leniency as well. Punishment in the Roman world is seen as something that's designed to be public, symbolic, to deter others. That's why you throw people to the lions in the arenas. That's why you crucify them so they die slowly and unpleasantly and very visibly. And the army works under the same principle. So things that will be most intimidating, but you don't overdo it because there's a risk that if they still keep saying no to what you're going on, well, what do you do? I think that's a really interesting point to leave us on. Thank you so much for your time today, Adrian. That's right. Happy to chat. I I quite like talking about the Romans. That was Adrian Goldsworthy, author and historian of the ancient world. Adrian also recently appeared on our podcast to discuss the evolving relationship between two superpowers of the ancient world. Check out Rome versus Persia wherever you get your podcasts to listen. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer-Ard.